Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Now, since the mid 20th century or so, plastics have become a completely indispensable feature of a packaging food. So much so that many of us can't recall ever not having them. However, today we're still struggling with what to do about the challenge of the waste that comes from packaging in plastics. And it's not just the plastic that we can see, we now have overwhelming evidence that our heavy use of plastics, together with the relatively poor job that we've done to reduce, reuse and recycle, has led to the presence of micro and nanoplastics in our environment. But is this a problem or not? Sidish is delighted today to be partnered with the IFT Food Engineering Division to discuss the subject of micro and nanoplastics. And thanks to the IFT Food Engineering Division for helping us to find two renowned experts in this field. Our guests today are Dr. Maya El Sidchik from the University of Surrey in the UK and Dr. Paul Takaskoff from Rutgers University here in the US. Dr. Sheik and Dr. Takaskoff, welcome to Side Dish and thank you for offering to share your expertise with us. Thank you very much for having us. So I'd like to start today by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you first became interested in this area of nano and microplastics. So, so Maya, how about you lead us off? Well, I've been interested about plastic pollution since a very long time. When I was uh, little, uh, when I was going to the beach over the summer, there were plastic litter everywhere. So on my way uh, to go to, to the beach, um, I was picking up all the plastic to put that uh, in the beans because I thought that it will never disappear. Yeah. So after that, um, when I went to school, um, I was quite good in science, so... Um, I think you always take the you know the easiest thing that you, you can do. So I really continue on science. Yeah. Uh, and actually, uh, when I went to the university, I decided that why not you know combine science with something that um, I really care about, which was the environment. So uh, I looked to go for chemistry, but more environmental chemistry where uh, I reached to uh, in the, the world of oceanography and looking for contaminants in the ocean. Um, so I started to work on metallic nanoparticles because at the time that was the hot topic in terms of contaminants. And when, once I finished my PhD, um, I was looking for my next position. Right. And um, out of the blue, I did Google... Oh, um, uh, something about nano nanoparticles and pollutants and came out this uh, position uh, in the UK with a, a professor uh, which was called Richard Thompson. And so I did apply because I look at the advert and it was fitting all the requirements, uh, but, um, you know, it's quite rare. So I did apply even if it was after the deadline. And they reopened the position for me uh, to oh, apply. Nice. Yeah, uh, and actually I did the interview and I was really not scared about that because I was oh, if they reopen the position, it means that it's a good sign. Right. So uh, I went to the interview, I did the presentation and I actually uh, proposed several ideas about how to solve 
some problems about plastic. And um, an hour later, they called me to give me the position. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when I arrived in the position, everybody told me that, you know, who is Richard Thompson? I was, I know, but that's my, my employer now. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, that's the person who started the field. Ah, ah so you, you really got some famous people you're working with. That's really good. So, Paul, can, can you help us understand a little bit about your background and how you became involved in this field of nano and microplastics? Very simple. I'm a food engineer. I'm working in the area of food nanomaterials, delivery systems to make nanoparticles, emulsions, and make our food safer and better. And the field by detection, it's again to find everything which might harm our food. And in the recent year, we working on the One Health approach. Mm. We're living on one planet and we're part of our ecosystem. And as everybody, I was horrified with the photographs of dying birds and fish and handful of microplastics and particles that can be found in our water. And I recognize that we need to protect our food, protect ourselves and our consumers. And I recognize that this is extremely challenging and complex problems. We can see them, we can find them, but they are there. Right. right. Hence the, uh, your work on biodetection to see if we can um, find better ways of detecting them. Uh, this is uh, maybe the most difficult part right if you can extract them you can detect right but the problem that by their physical properties uh, size uh, chemistry appearance and the optical electromagnetic they're not much different from the biological materials which is the food is biological matrix so it's very very difficult to find them uh, also you can extract them with very complicated methods, uh, but like mass spec, uh, prepare, but it's destructive method. You cannot detect them in real time in the food matrices. You cannot detect them without significant modification in any biological structures. So this is a great challenge, and that's what we're working on. Right. So staying with you for a little bit there, um, perhaps we need to dial back and, and help our listeners who might not be familiar with this topic and maybe do a definition of what are nanoplastics and microplastics. Can you help us with that, Paul? Uh, absolutely. Uh, by the name, they're particles, particulates, originated from the polymeric materials. And in the food industry, we're talking about the food contact surfaces, mostly packaging, but also materials that use in the equipment and outside. And size is there for the microparticles. We're talking about the range from one to maybe 50 to 100 microns. Uh, the larger particles, they are heavy enough, so they precipitate and they wouldn't stay long enough in the environment. 
And for nanoparticles, we're talking about submicron and true nanoparticles in the range between uh, nanometers and maybe up to 100 to 200 nanometers. And they can actually exhibit some different properties and behavior than larger particles. Right. Um, so, so Mar, I wonder if we could switch to you, and and I wonder if we can ask you to give us an overview on the current knowledge or the impact of nanoplastics and microplastics on the environment, and maybe even human health. Can you help us with that? Yes. Um, so, in terms of impact of nanoplastic, there is little knowledge because that's not long ago that we are aware of those nano sizes of of, of plastic. Um, but in terms of microplastic, a lot of research has been um, has been done, and um, at very high concentration, microplastic can trigger some biological response like uh, inflammation. But in terms of nanoplastic, uh, we don't know yet. Um, but the first um, insight that we have, and it's linked to the research I'm conducting. Um, we have been able um, to uh, demonstrate that the particle, the nanoparticle, can translocate through the body, so which means that can go through a cellular membrane and travel to deep organs in an organism. So this is quite interesting and um, maybe alarming at some point because if those particles can travel as they want in a biological system, we don't know what could be the impact, and actually, we could have already some impact that we are not aware. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That. That. That's. I, I'd like to sure. add that the major question actually is not the direct impact, because uh, the concentration of such particles pretty small in the environment, but would they be metabolized by our body? or they will be accumulated inside. In the later case, this will be the most dangerous situation. That's a very good point, because actually um, the, the technique I did develop by using radiocarbon, uh, so which means I use the radioactive form of the carbon using very low amount of that and labeling the carbon backbone of the plastic I've been able to track them and quantify them uh, in the body and actually showing that uh, there is some accumulation. And uh, by collecting those quantity and those data, I've been able to model that uh, nanoparticles uh, of 20 or 200 uh, nanometer can bioaccumulate within a year and could reach concentration in the body that can trigger biological response. So actually, the research I've done has highlighted that chronic exposure of those particles might trigger uh, uh, some biological response. And currently, we cannot say if this, this is the case or not. So the research I'm doing currently is trying to challenge this modeling and see if actually we are really bioaccumulating those particles. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is some concern. And if you layer on top of that the fact that um, most of the plastics we use uh, do have uh, other chemical additives to enhance the polymer's properties, I mean, things like pigments and plasticizers and stabilizers, and one assumes that if we've got 
that very, very large surface area associated with uh, nanoparticles that uh, the chemical nature of these other other components could be having some impact as well. Did, is that something that you've also studied, either of you? Let's start with Mayo. How about you first? Uh, yes, actually, I have like uh, two PhD students working on exactly this topic, where we are looking at the adsorption of uh, other contaminants to the nanoparticles and also to look at the bioaccumulation and what we call the bioavailability, so how this contaminant adsorbed to the particle once it's in the body is available to travel into the body. Mm. Um, so we have some few that are uh, collected that um, depend. So it depends of the contaminant. So if it's an organic contaminant, uh, there is uh, a little adsorption. But if it's an organometallic contaminant, we have a very high adsorption. Right. So so the particle themselves are absorbing materials that then can carry them into the biological system. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yes. All right. So, Paul, I can see you're, you're really uh, keen to, uh, to, to add to that. So, so tell us what you think. Uh, actually, uh, the, the particles uh, of such scale, they can be delivered through the water or they can be adhered to the surfaces. Right. And such uh, particles will be extremely difficult to remove from the surfaces uh, because of the scale of the forces inside this so irregular washing and hydrodynamics will not work. And they can serve, and this is the already published work, they can serve as the harbor for pathogenic bacteria. So they can transfer bacteria to the human body. Wow. So this is additional possible risk and that we have to pay attention for. Wow, yeah, that, that becomes really interesting. It it blurs the uh, the boundary of uh, the classic food safety from uh, physical hazards and and biological hazards. These become somewhat both. That's quite concerning. So we've seen a lot of development in the area of um, biodegradable plastics. Do do either of you know anything about the nature of the biodegradable plastics and whether they're they too create these nanoparticles or, or not. Paul, can we start with you on that? Yeah, absolutely. The biodegradable plastics attract a lot of attention uh, for many reasons, uh, and sustainability and environment and technology. But unfortunately, they cannot outcompete traditional polymeric materials for the packaging because they cannot provide the same level of the barrier properties and provide the same level of food protection and shelf life required by the retailers in current supply chain. They cannot work effectively in the hot and wet climate. So they have limited application and uh, because of their nature, uh, they will degrade pretty fast and might not be transferred through the environment to the human, okay? But they might provide uh, their metabolites can can provide uh, some uh, nutrients for the bacteria where they are. 
but the traditional plastics they are more uh, common but actually there are two different categories of the plastics or uh, nanoplastic present in the environment in the ocean Actually, the more traditional plastics like poly, polyurethane, uh, polystyrene, and some other. But in the freshwater, for example, there are publications in the European rivers and Great Lakes. The most common micro and nanoplastic pollutions actually lint from garments, oh. not from the packaging. Right. And the second contributor, actually, the nanoparticles uh, from the rubber and asphalts from our cars and roads. Right. right. So they are two major sources, which considers about 60-70% of all micro and nanoplastics in Great Lakes area and larger rivers. Right. And the packaging actually is the lower contributor to this environmental particular pollution. That's really fascinating because you you can appreciate how, I think most people can appreciate how the um, um, material from, say, tyres on the roads can get into stormwater and therefore into the water stream. I I think the the, the harder to understand is... um, the microplastics and nanoplastics associated with that have been shed from clothing, how that gets into the water stream. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, The the only proposed sources is our washing machines. Ah, right. And the sewage and the nature chemistry of such small uh, fibrous particles, they are not like rounded, they're fiber-like, actually they are not uh, removed by by our uh, sewage system and not going through the other processes, so they're not coagulated, they're not removed, and they actually going to the water. And through the water, through the washing fluid, through the agriculture, they might return back to the food system. So, so Mayor, I, I wonder if I could ask you to talk a little bit more or build on what Paul just said. What have you seen with respect to the sources of these nano and microparticles and, and which components do you think are, are worse than others in terms of generating more of these? In terms of source of plastic, uh, I agree with Paul that a lot of packaging and single-use plastic uh, is, you know, the, one of the major uh, pl- uh, plastic com- coming from our waste. Um, yeah, that's true. Tires uh, is a huge one as well, but there's a lot of estimation currently, which are, you know, de- desk today, and we don't have any technique currently to quantify those type of of sources. So actually, that's quite difficult to say that there is one source more prevalent to another. We have some estimation that can guide us. But the the true challenge currently is the analytical challenge to be able to detect those particles and to characterize them in environmental sample. As the carbon, you know, as all those plastic are carbon, it's very, very difficult to detect them compared to the environmental matrix, which is also carbon-based um, composition. 
So there is a, a lot, a lot to do, to be honest, to to answer that question, and we could not answer that question accurately today. Right. So, so that brings us to the question of what really is the worst kind of plastic? I mean, we we our consumers see a lot of plastic in the environment, and that's obviously the macro pieces of plastic. But once it is in the environment it starts to degrade and then before we know where we are, we're starting to generate microplastic and it starts to, to generate the question, well, where is the biggest risk? Do you, do you have a view on that? Paul, do you want to lead us off on that? You know, the, I, I do agree with Maya that scientific data are sporadic and non-systematic at this point. We just recognize the potential danger and therefore, data are limited to the synthetic plastic particulates, which used in the labs, which are different from what we see in the environment. And the second limited to the uh, products or materials where detection is quite possible. For example, there are plenty of publications uh, regarding the drinking water. But the drinking water, uh, bottled water, uh, obtaining plastics, microplastics from the food contact surfaces, specifically caps, as a result of the mechanical processing. But uh, this product is well protected from the environment because it's obtained by the membrane technologies, so it's not direct contact. But there are many products which coming from the environment, especially with the current interest to low processed fresh produce, and they coming from the field, they use the as washing fluids, not uh, fluids from the municipal water and other sources, and they might be source of the microplastics. In nanoplastics, but detection in such matrices, it's extremely difficult. Mm, mm. So we don't have comprehensive information yet. And therefore, our current judgment is based on incomplete information. We don't see the entire picture. Therefore, we're switching mostly to the possible risk analysis. Right. Investigating the channels of the distribution and the translation and how they can migrate from one surface to another. Right. So this is just, we are at the beginning of the long road. Right. So, so Mayo, you talked earlier about the migration of these particles within a biological system and how you've been able to detect that they are migrating within the biological system. Do you, are you aware of any research that's been done with respect to um, the health impacts of, of this accumulation or migration through the biological system? From what I've read, the only papers I've been able to find so far are all about fish and shellfish, and, and the, the results are not particularly positive, but I've not seen anything on um, uh, mammals and, and, and larger animals. So, so what have you seen on that area, and is, can you build on that? Uh, yeah, so actually, in terms of health impact, there is no data. 
um, because it's more complicated to to have experiment on human uh, because it's highly regulated. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what we know currently is that uh, nanoplastic has been uh, detected in uh, human blood, and um, therefore. Uh, a lot of research starts uh, on human health, and there is a lot starting, but there is no data currently. So what we can know is that uh, nanoplastic can be accumulated in uh, seafood, because that's what I demonstrated. And I've been called by farmers really al <laughs> alarming me that, oh my God, it will, it will stop the market of, of shellfish. But at the same time, I've demonstrated that if you uh, have a good system to clean them actually the particle just go away within two days ah. so um i think uh we need to be to be balanced in the way of looking at that problem that yes it's accumulating uh in our uh, potentially in our food because in for currently for crops there is little evidence but um we might have bioaccumulation in our food, but we could also put in place some system to protect ourselves to eat those particles. Right. Do you want to build on that, Paul? Yeah. The, there are publications, the massive study in Europe, Japan, published uh, that microplastic has been detected in human feces. Uh, so we digesting them and excreting them, but nanoplastic, as Maya said, can go through the intestinal barrier due to their size and very high similarity to the biological material. And therefore, they can be translated to the blood. And there are data on mice that they can go through the blood-brain barrier. Wow. So technically... No, any part of the human body is protected. And additionally, there's just a recent publication that nanoparticles, uh, plastic nanoparticles were detected in the vascular tissue. Wow. So technically, okay. they can be in our body. Yeah. But uh, the level of the exposure and um, if there are any critical levels that we can tolerate it's still unknown right right so so what can we do as as consumers to um firstly avoid consuming these materials and secondly uh, avoid adding to or compounding the problem by by um, putting more into the environment could you give us some insight into that Maya? would you like to lead us off on that again um I would say that I don't think we can avoid it, really, um, except if you're doing your own, you know, um, culture of vegetables and you have your uh, own um, chicken to eat eggs and everything that you can control, everything, you know, uh, related to your food. Um, but uh, in terms of what uh, we can do uh, is probably maybe using less plastic uh, around us because if we use less single-use plastic, maybe, you know, uh, as there is no demand, the industry will change the, the, the way of producing uh, the product. Also, teaching to the young people to be aware of that, they might help to educate uh, the parents and the grandparents and to, to have a new culture surrounding the plastic use. 
Right. Would you like to build on that, Paul? Yeah. Uh, there are two directions, actually three, that we can work on. The first, I would uh, re-emphasize what Maya said, is the education. The basic hygiene, the basic food safety procedure, washing, raw doesn't mean that it's safe, or organic doesn't mean that it's safe. It needs to be cleaned, washed, and properly stored. Right. This would remove the major possible contaminants from the surface. The second, we should pay attention on the potential sources of plastics, specifically from the environment, and therefore maybe introduce additional engineering barriers like membrane filtration technology or any other technologies that might eliminate such potential particulate contamination from the waters that we use a lot mm -hmm. in the system. Of course, sustainability, if you'll make it recirculate, this will be even better. And the third is the understanding of the environmental, biological impact and work on the detection technology. Right. So, so you said at the start that that was one of your areas of focus of your research, the detection technologies. And uh, it raises the question for me about the methods that we're using currently to detect these uh, nanoplastics in particular and measure their concentration. What's the latest thinking on that and how, how evolved is that science? Right now is the, actually our capabilities are quite limited if we work in the, directly in the environmental or biological food matrices. Okay. Therefore, we cannot separate, we cannot detect this uh, until we label, like my doing the uh, radio labeling, or we attach fluorescent labels so we can visualize, separate, and quantify. Okay. Or other methods is complete destruction of the matrix and looking for a unique signature of the certain materials. In that case, we can quantify the overall concentration, overall presence, but not the distribution them in the body. Right. Hmm. So, so maybe one of the things that we need to ask or talk about now is the uh, research questions that still need to be addressed with respect to nanoparticles and their impact on the environment and human health. Um, Maya, can you lead us off on that? What, in your opinion, what are, what are the things that we still need to be really working on as scientists in order to help solve this problem for the for the greater society? I think, but that's the question I'm I'm working currently on. Actually, um, that's um, are we currently beyond the threshold effect of the, of those nanoplastic in the environment? Uh, because yes, they are at very low level, but uh, being exposed chronically to them, and if we are bioaccumulating them, it means that we are already beyond the threshold effect. So we have to uh, to answer the question that do we are currently experiencing already 
um, disease developed by the exposure to those plastic mm. cro- chronically. Right. Yeah. That's quite a big question though, isn't it? <laughs> so, Paul, what about you? What's your thinking in terms of the research questions that need to be addressed about this subject? There are several directions that we must go in this way. First of all, understanding the transformation of such particulates in the environment because they're exposed to the sun, to the atmosphere, uh, to different chemicals and different temperatures, and therefore they're, they're passing through the series of the chemical transformations, and sometimes at least their surfaces will have different composition than in initial plastics. And this will completely affect uh, their uh, way how they aggregate, their shape, their chemistry, their size. And this will, in another way, will affect their transport properties and how they will migrate and propagate through the environment. This is one direction. So we need to know our animals. The second, we already mentioned, is the method for the detection, the, the possible impact on the health, and from the processing standpoint of view, how we can protect our food. Right. And are there any um, particular forms of, of the packaging material, where you, the plastic packaging material we're using in the food industry today that you would regard as more problematic than others? Uh, there are several reports when the composition of the collected plastic materials from rivers and from ocean was published. And actually, all five major uh, polymeric materials that used for the food packaging, they were present. Right. So I can't call the winner. <laughs> or loser, as the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> mm, right. We've got to the point where we've identified there are microplastics and there's quite a lot of them and there is some indication they're bioaccumulating and there is some concern. So what else would you like our listeners today to know about these little tiny particles? Maya, would you like to lead us off on that? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of work uh, to to do on those uh, tiny particles. So if our listener or student looking for PhD or postdoc position um, to to try to fight on that front uh, in the environment, I think there's plenty of space for for a lot of students uh, to um, you know to help uh, on those uh, on those pro- uh, problems. Um, so. Yeah, that that would be what I would advise to our listeners. Um, just try to to be careful with what they eat and uh, their origin, because even table salt can contain, you know, micro nanoplastic. So uh, all all everything makes sense, like looking for um, you know salt coming coming from uh, mine rather than sea salt, those kind of things. So I think uh, that's what I would advise our uh, listeners. So what advice would you have, Paul? Uh, It's 
I don't have enough information to give an advice. <laughs> scientist, I have a true scientist. It's good to hear. Um, <laughs> but the general direction that the entire industry taking in terms of the sustainability mm. and more natural biodegradable materials actually will significantly reduce potential risk from such contamination. And second, we there is no simple solution for complex problem. We can get rid of plastic packaging materials. We can get rid of the plastic parts of the equipment. But in that case, we have to return to the glass containers, to the canned food. Mm -hmm. uh, so moving back 50, 70 years from now. Right and to maintain the same level of the convenience, the same level of year-round supply of the high-quality and safe food, this will be difficult. And right. everybody should understand that uh, some processes are irreversible. We have to find the solution, not just by elimination, but by the improvement and innovation. So it would seem like there is opportunities for scientists not just to work on this particular challenge, but to work on the challenge of um, how we can reduce, reuse, recycle uh, yeah. the plastic materials we're already putting into the environment. So that opens up the, the broader question, what is the pathway for uh, a bright young scientist to to join this kind of level of research and and uh, uh, contribute to the body of research that can help solve these problems? Paul, would you like to to lead on that one? Oh, the easiest. I I'd like to avoid the easiest answer: money. <laughs> uh, research is expensive. But actually, the motivation and understanding of the problem and understanding that this is not just technical problem, but the problem of our society, mm. including consumer behavior, including our waste practices and relation to the environment. And of course, uh, investment in the technologies. Right. Not in the new product, not in the new materials, but the technologies. Right. And, and so, Maya, perhaps you can help us understand the, the background that you're looking for for people that would come into this field. Would you help us with that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the type of background I think uh, we, we really need and we lack actually is, um, is chemists. Because the, the field I started with bio, um, biologists, marine biologists, when you know, they were detecting micro sizes, so that was quite you know, easy to, to detect. But when we reach nano sizes, it's invisible to, the, to our eyes. So we really need to, to have uh, people being able to do some analytical chemistry. I think that's, that's, uh, that's helpful because there is not a lot of us. Um, as the field is really dominated by biologists, um, so um, and that's where is the challenge. By you know, analytical challenge can can be solved uh, by an analytical chemist, or hopefully can be solved by analytical chemist. Mm. So I think yeah, 
if uh, some young students uh, are unsure about which pathway to take and they like analytical chemis- chemistry, I think that's a good pathway. Mm. Well, thank you very much to both of you. Uh, it's been um, a very interesting uh, exploration of a, of a field that is... Uh, I've got quite some concerns and quite challenges in front of us. So thank you for your time and sharing us with your knowledge with us today and, and helping us to appreciate the challenges of these nano and microplastics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you also to the IFT Food Engineering Division for bringing us such an important topic. If you're enjoying SciDish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT or by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in into the search box to access a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin, and have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.